1: Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of the Lizard Wellbeing Show. Today's guest, Dr. Harriet Holm, is an extra special one as she is one of the brilliant columnists that make up the Lizard Wellbeing magazine family. And in an online world full of food fads and dietary misinformation, Harriet's medical training and science backed information really caught my eye and sets her apart as a truly trusted voice in the field of nutrition. She was a paediatric doctor for over a decade, earning a PhD in cancer genetics along the way. She's now a fully qualified and registered nutritionist, having swapped medical practice for nutritional consultancy. And she is on a mission to make sure we are all eating well for our health. And if you would like to see Harriet and I in conversation, we have actually recorded it in vision and you can catch this over on YouTube. As the healthy eating doctor on social media, Harriet is passionate about using the latest science and hard evidence to make sure the food we eat is doing us good and is incredibly tasty at the same time. Her background in medicine helps to provide dietary support for a number of conditions that span our whole lives, especially as women, from fertility to menopause and beyond. Since the birth of her beautiful children, Harriet has turned her eye to pregnancy and postpartum, publishing her brilliant new e-book, Postpartum Nutrition, An Expert's Guide to Eating After a Baby. And this is the topic we're going to be diving into today, alongside so much more. I do hope that you will share widely with any expectant mothers in your life. And also, we're talking about all aspects of nutrition and also some of the food intolerances and explaining some of the science behind that. There's so much that we can do to support our health and well being, especially during a joyful but very exhausting and often challenging time, such as having had a baby. And we'll be looking at nutritional needs later in life too for example perimenopause and menopause of course pretty much covering what most if not all female healthcare needs to do in terms of what to eat and when so without further ado let's introduce Harriet. So Harriet you have had a really extraordinary career with your medical background and then sort of moving more into the nutritional world how did that all come about why did you get so fascinated with nutrition? Um I
2: don't really think it was one thing. I think just sort of a number of things happened, um, sort of after my children were born, that made me reevaluate my career. And um, and at the same time, having just completed my PhD in genetics, I found the sort of the, the new frontier of the microbiota and the microbiome really fascinating. And having worked yeah. in pediatric oncology, nutrition was a big part of that. Um, and I just think the combination of those things really that um, that I sort of felt at the time that I needed to step out of medicine, but I was really fascinated by nutrition, um, really interested in the science, the research. Um, having done my PhD in a laboratory, I I loved doing that, and it gave me an insight into sort of you know animal studies, um, cellular studies, interpreting the papers, the research, how that translates into humans. So. Um, I guess it gives me a different perspective, sort of more health, medical perspective in, in many ways. But mm. I, I love this. I love the science. I like helping people. Um, it just sort of fitted really well, to be honest.
1: So, yeah, it, um, it's, the right it's step. Yeah, you, you are that lovely, refreshing, rare breed, I think, of almost the kind of the new wave of nutritionists who have that really solid evidence based medical background. Thank you. Because, you know, they do say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, you and me both, we have seen so many well-intentioned, really well-meaning, you know, nutritionists, inverted commas. Uh, And I don't pretend to get it because I'm not a doctor and I'm not a medic but you know can often just get it that little bit wrong and and you know not fully understand that the actual the ways the body works and and i think the fact that we can throw in that you're a geneticist and you know and have studied all of that as well or you know deeply studied the academia of the of the genetic profile and what's happening in the microbiome is so fascinating to bring it all together so i wouldn't i'm not
2: technically a geneticist as i there are if you do a, a a, a t- specific type of doctor that's a geneticist, but certainly doing my PhD was all on the genetics of um, a very rare type of bone cancer, and um and overlapped a bit with breast cancer. And I did that all in um, the laboratory where BRCA two was discovered. It was a really inspiring right. place, and I I loved learning about the genetics, and I do think that really has shaped how I how I view things now. But as you say, it's given me a really um, that sort of science but breaking that science down to people so that it's accessible and they understand it because there are so many people out there that are nutri claim to be nutritionists but have no recognized qualifications and lots of no that's the crazy knits. thing So only if you're a registered nutritionist yeah. that are, are you part of a professional body and is there any you know yeah. um Regulation and qualifications. So I think it's quite horrifying
1: in that regard that anyone can just with yeah. five and and knowledge. also you know n- not only that with with nutritionists but even doctors and, and you see it all the time people putting the word doctor mm. in in front of their name when actually they're not a medical doctor you know they haven't been to medical medical school they've you know they're a PhD yeah. doctorate. But you know, you take that word doctor, and you go and you know get some fancy room somewhere in Harley Street or whatever, and everyone thinks, "Oh, doctor." Yeah, Center. absolutely. It's um, very true. Very true. It must be very frustrating for the real deal, like you, to kind of, you know, be be working potentially, you know, alongside others. And I, I think, you know, I would certainly like to see, you know, anybody who uses the word doctor in a medical setting to to actually be regulated in a way that you're covered by mm. the GMC. You know, you, you know, you've been to medical school and you know, you're able to practice medicine, I guess, in the in the broader sense, but that's just that's just a personal bugbear of mine. Anyway, welcome to my Thanks. team. It's lovely no, it's to you absolute here. pleasure. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> and I think one of the things that also really struck me when I was looking at your work is how female focused you are. And you know, you talk about working with mums and babies and and obviously your research with breast cancer. It really seems to me that that what shines through is how best to enable women to get the most out of their nutrition and their nutritional needs at whatever stage of life, whether it's, you know, younger women going through perhaps their first pregnancy through to postpartum breastfeeding beyond. And then as we go through life, we get into perimenopause and menopause. And, you know, you've written about all of that, haven't you?
2: Yes. um, Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, sort of a bit of an unmet need in many ways. You know, and I think those sort of um, times in life where it's particularly stressful for people, whether you're trying for a baby, there's so much information out there on the Internet. You know, how do you know what's credible? Um, And and certainly as a mother myself of two children, um, when both of mine had cows, milk protein allergy, despite being a pediatrician, Mm -hmm. I found it difficult to access, you know, uh, access some of the information that I needed at the time. So I just really wanted to provide a sort of source of credible, well-researched, evidence-based, you know, up to date with the latest guidelines, um, information yeah. for all of those different, you know, ju- points in the journey, you know, through our lives, really. So I think um, that was that was my intention to help help people, you know, optimize their health at those
1: different life stages. And there's nothing like being personally invested. You know, you talk about yourself with your babies, having having issues with with. Feeding, and you know, for me, when I think, you know, my eldest daughter Lily, she's now at the time of recording this, you know, nearly hitting thirty. Wow. And for me, that that was the, the when I was pregnant with her, you know, thirty years ago, that was really the driving force for me. I wanted to know that I was eating the most healthy things, the best things that I mm. could to support you know, a new growing human and then beyond. And I guess that, you know, partly what, you know, fueled my interest right at the beginning. And in fact, your recent book that's just come out is specifically on that early stage. So should we go through chronologically? Should we kind of start with some pointers here perhaps for, for new mums and, and let's, let's begin it almost at the beginning of, of womanhood perhaps for some women?
2: Yes, absolutely. My new book's all on um, postpartum nutrition, uh, and that sort of early stage when you're a new mum, and just trying to sort of guide you to optimize, you know, their health really. Um, And I think it can be a bit of a forgotten time. You're so focused on your precious new baby that, in some ways, the sort of mums a bit forgotten, Um, and. And it's tricky, there's no doubt, especially if you've got a toddler and they're running around trying to make nutritious food is, is really difficult. Um, it's also a time when you're tired and exhausted and stressed, potentially. And um, that, you know, trying to sort of be empowered to make those healthy choices um and grab a healthy snack as opposed to you know a chocolate bar um is is important um is is really important actually I think um and there's lots of evidence about sort of bi-directional relationship between stress and nutrition so if you're stressed and tired not only on a sort of mindful psychological level are you more likely to to reach that chocolate bar but also um that there's a actually communication between the brain and the gut the, the brain affects what you actually end up eating and what you eat affects your mood so there's sort of so many different levels of it um and and how really just to help support new mums um give them the information they need so they can make those healthy choices and if they're breastfeeding that they need extra calcium um, and iodine and that um just to show them really what that looks like. So I think it's really abstract concept. You know, if you're just told you need 1,250 milligrams of calcium, what on earth does that mean? You know, what does it look like? How do I incorporate that into my diet? Um, do I need all the different supplements that people are trying to sell me the whole time? Um, how can I look after my gut health? Uh, all of those kind of things, really. Uh, how to sort of you need you know how to increase your fibre. And then I often asked about um you know sort of how do you get your your body back after um having a baby, and I think lots of people think that sort of sort of celebrities out there you know they're ping straight back and why why have an eye and some sort of so some information about that how first of all, I think you know you should it's not natural to ping straight back. It's great if
1: you do, but most women don't. And that, you no, know, It took she, nine months to, to get there. It's going to take at least nine months to get back again, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. Um, and then just about really sort of sustainable ways of you know getting your fitness back, you know, um, maybe losing weight slowly, but in a sustainable manner yeah. um, that's healthy and really about making those healthy long-term choices. So it's not a quick fix. It's not a crash diet. It's just about, you
1: know, choosing to eat mindfully eating well how to support that yeah all these messages that were that we're told and I think w- what I'd like to pick up there is something that you mentioned really early on which is almost a sort of a forgotten nutrient in many ways and that was iodine mm. and interesting that you talk specifically about the women's needs for iodine going up during breastfeeding mm-hmm. and yet that's it can be quite hard to find iodine in foods can't it what sort of things do you recommend um, so it's mainly in things like um, fish and dairy.
2: And so that's, I think, why it's a particularly important nutrient for mums that have had to, or are either vegan by choice or have had to exclude dairy because of um, their baby's got calcium protein allergy. So calcium and iodine then are really hard come by um if you're vegan and i think um people need mums need to be supported to know that they might need to supplement or how to get that naturally that actually now that a couple of plant-based milks actually are fortified with not only calcium but also iodine and that's a fairly new thing really within the last year that the iodine's been added um so um i think you know, knowing those things, it's it's really easy then to think, all oh, right right, I need my I need a bit of extra iodine, I'm not getting that in my diet because I'm vegan or I'm, you know, very excluding or actually I just don't drink much or eat much of, you know, products with them in. And and knowing then that all right, if I have, you know, a glass or this or that of plant-based milk, mm. choosing one with the iodine, that I can,
1: you know, meet my yeah. micronutrient needs and look after my long-term Interesting. health. What why is iodine so important? You know, particularly you mentioned during breastfeeding. What, what what's iodine actually doing in, in a woman's body? Um so iodine has got a number of um different
2: uh so, so, so number of different functions, including looking after brain health, um thyroid um, so it, it's, it's got a number of different, uh, functions. And if you don't have enough, you're more likely to have fatigue and be tired. Um, so I think, you know, it's quite, they're quite sort of nebulous symptoms. You're not going to be like, oh, I've got iodine deficiency. You're probably more yes. like to think, I, I'm i a tired new mum. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah that's why it's you know can often be a bit of a sort of forgotten one calcium is probably more an iron people are more worried about normally at the sort of forefront of people's mind but mm-hmm. that's why i think it's really important to know what you should be getting what you need so that you're sure then that tiredness is just because your baby kept you up
1: all night not, <laughs> <little bit> <laughs> night. not for anything else yeah. i remember talking to um an orthopedic specialist about calcium and bones during mm-hmm. pregnancy and saying that each pregnancy the baby takes 5% of your calcium from your skeleton from the mum's mm. bone that's that's how the baby makes its own bones his or her own bones through robbing the mum of mm-hmm. the of the calcium so I was kind of sitting there doing the maths, talking to him and saying, Well, I've I've had five children. Wow. So does that mean that I've lost 25% of the calcium in my bones? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Yes. <laughs> so it's like, that's a shocker. You know, I mean, I am very cattle. I mean, I do eat a lot of dairy products and cheese and things. So, you know, from that point of view, I think I'm probably getting my calcium, but nobody had actually spelt it out in, in such graphic terms. Of course, as we age, we know that osteoporosis mm. is such, uh, not only a debilitating uh, disease, but a killer for women. Mm, absolutely. And we need to be banking our calcium, don't we? Because don't, don't we lose our ability to bank calcium beyond us late 20s?
2: So um so just to say there's certainly a lot of mixed evidence about calcium. Um, some people think that you absolutely don't need more during breastfeeding, but there is good evidence that you do need more during pregnancy and breastfeeding, and that while your baby might leach some of the calcium out and take it while they're in utero and during breastfeeding, that you can catch up your calcium when once they've weaned and once you're no longer doing that but I think so that that might hold but it's really difficult to know. And therefore I think that you should be supporting mm-hmm. your own micronutrient needs while you're pregnant, while you're breastfeeding yeah. and that yes, um, calcium is super important for bone health. Um, you need it all through your life. And also you need to be doing resistance training, um, you know, yeah. exercise because without that you, you can have all the calcium in the world, but without exercise, you know, resistance
1: training exercise, it's just not going to keep your bones
2: so how is that working then?
1: You know, I can kind of understand if we eat calcium, it gets through its sort of magical migration into the bones. How is exercise, in particular, creating more of this mineral within the bone?
2: So I'm I'm no exercise specialist, but I think it's it's all to do with remodeling of of bone. That bone is constant. There are different types of cells, osteoclast and the osteoblast, that are constantly remodeling your bone so they're constantly removing bone and laying it down and exercise helps stimulate that and it's that process of of remodeling and keeping them um keeping them essentially keeping the strength within them that enables um you to reduce your risk of osteoporosis that it's constantly using them and it's using them with forces against them so like aerobic acti- activity doesn't stimulate um the forces that you need so you need opposing forces which is why you need the resistance training that's so
1: fascinating isn't it it's specifically resistance so it's this kind of push pull mm, mm. you know using your own body weight whether it's yeah. push-ups or you know i mean women i know mid- midlife take up weightlifting. you know, yeah, to get yeah. that, that kind of resistance
2: yeah absolutely so and it's really important especially post-menopausal Um, you know as long as uh, as well as eating you know calcium magnesium phosphorus which you should be able to through any you know well-balanced diet um that resistance training that exercise is really important especially post-menopausal
1: yeah let's come back to what you were saying about having a child um dairy intolerant and you know this is sort of front of mind for me because one of my boys is lactose intolerant and so i'm i'm aware of the milk sugar, uh, mm-hmm. and I've done quite a bit of writing on that and about how you can still in many cases still have kefir, for example, one of my favorite foods, mm-hmm. because the bacteria there are digesting the lactose, that's what yeah. they're, they're feeding. So the time we have it, it's you know virtually lactose free in some cases. Um, but what I'm less sure about, and I'd, I'd love you to talk us through this, are the different types of intolerances, because not only is there lactose intolerance, but there's also casein. Intolerance and mm-hmm. can you can you explain what casein is and and the kind of the differences and how we could tell perhaps? Um, so there are lots of
2: different um, types of dairy allergy. So first of all, if you if I sort of think of it in sort of chronological order, so there's there are so milk is made up of uh, of proteins and fat. The fat is not really allergenic. It's just the proteins, and that's your casein, um, casein albumin, and whey. Um, but there's a specific protein called a cow's milk protein, and that is what most babies are allergic to. Um, so if your baby's got a dairy allergy, they're allergic to the cow's milk protein itself. And, um, and doesn't matter if you take lactose-free milk um, because it's not the lactase that they're allergic to. They're allergic to the actual protein. So they're allergic to the cow's milk protein, which is that's why... That's
1: really fascinating. I mean, I, I, I don't think that is fully understood. I think a lot of people think, oh, dairy intolerance, there you go. I'll just buy lactose-free. But, yeah. you know, from yeah. what you're saying, that's not actually the issue. No. So um, so in, in their milk,
2: there's a sugar called lactose. Lactose, and that is broken down by an enzyme that we naturally have in our body. Some people have less of it, and some people have none, and that's called lactase. Lactase breaks down lactose, and if you're unable to um, to break that down yourself, then you get the sort of you know bloating, wind, all of those symptoms, and it's so that's really more of a sort of adult thing that people right. um, have that you don't see that commonly in babies. Um, so. And and if you have then the sort of lactase lact sorry lactose free milk, then yes. your your symptoms will go because your body's you know not having any problem that they, they don't that's not causing any symptoms any problems. So right. to go back to the um, cow's milk protein allergy, um, the actual sort of the, the physical properties of the protein cause the allergy or stimulate an allergic response. And the physical uh, shape of it is actually really similar to soya protein. And so that's why 50% of babies with cows more protein allergy will also have an allergy to soya because of the, the physical properties of it, uh, because it looks very similar and create, causes that allergenic response. And that's why also you can't just substitute cow's milk for, say, goat's milk, um, because the proteins are, are very similar and will cause the same reaction. Right. And then um, of those reactions, you can either have what's called an IgE-mediated reaction, which is a <laughs> uh, like a sort of anaphylactoid immediate. You get this sort of breathlessness, swelling, hives, rash.
3: Um, yep. A
2: very like if you have a sort of classic peanut reaction. Um, or you can have what's called a non-IGE-mediated reaction, which is a slower reaction. It happens in sort of more after 24 hours. You sort of can get uh, like sort of mucusy stool, blood in the stool, um, gut pain, eczema, wow. those kind of things. So, and that could be down to the casein.
1: As, yeah, that's as the,
2: the actual pro the cow's milk protein. Yeah.
1: And is this something that that babies tend to grow out
2: of? Yeah. So 90% of babies will grow out of by the time they're five.
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Right. Oh, interesting. So then you would sort of have an exclusion, perhaps obviously under supervision. Yeah. But start reintroducing foods containing casein
2: yeah absolutely so you'd um reintroduce um foods containing uh dairy and you go up a sort of allergenic ladder. it's called the dairy ladder where you start oh, talk off with... through
1: the allergenic ladder. I like the sound of that
2: um so you start off with uh cooked dairy very low quantities of cooked dairy um in say for example like a biscuit like um and Because that's got hardly any dairy in it at all. And and as you go up, you go sort of uh, muffin uh, cake, and then sort of like scrambled egg with some milk in it or a pancake that's where the the dairy's not very cooked. Right up sort of ice cream, yogurt, and then right at the top is you know, milk really, because it's it's um full of the protein and it's it's also raw, it's it's uncooked. It might be pasteurized, but it's not cooked. So cooking denatures the protein it unravels them and so it's really? much less likely to cause an allergic reaction you could yeah. have a cooked
1: milk pudding potentially yeah absolutely like, which is like why a rice pudding or something that had that been baked yes which is why for example um butter doesn't
2: contain much of the cow's milk protein in it and if you have cooked butter say in a croissant lots of mm. mums with Um, a baby who's got caloric protein allergy could actually eat
1: croissants um, because they're very low allergenicity. (laughs) So there you go. Low allergenic croissant. I like the sound (laughs) of that. The other thing that I'm hearing quite a bit about, and this is sort of to do, I guess, with my work uh, writing about supporting the immune system, Mm -hmm. is something called lactoferrin. Mm. And what is that and how does that play into all of this? So lactoferrin is normally a component
2: in breast milk which helps iron absorption um and and it's just a uh, sort of transport protein really but in it's it's one of the reasons why um iron is better absorbed from breast milk than it is say from formula uh, formula because it's got the lactoferrin in it and it also helps is thought to possibly have sort of antibacterial qualities because it reduces the amount of unbound iron in the in the gut and bacteria
1: like unbound iron so they that's fascinating um, I guess the clue is in the name isn't it lacto mm. milk ferrin iron yeah iron yeah. I'm actually seeing a little bit of noise around lactoferrin supplements I didn't realize it was only found in in human breast milk mm, so yeah. that's not not something that you know that we're all enjoying later in life and yet it still seems to have possibly interesting properties i mean i've I've seen it being you know promoted as sort of helping guard against flu and helping with the immune system
2: um so certainly do know that if you're iron deficient you are more likely to have problems with your immune system um but you should if you're iron replete um you know, that, that's less likely. So I, yeah. I haven't seen those studies on
1: lactoferrin. That'd be interesting yeah, to... Yeah, I'm, I'm just hearing it. You know how you hear these things kind of percolating around. And just a few times I've, I've spotted, you know, studies, or as I say, a little bit of noise around lactoferrin. I thought, oh, note to self, I need to need to have a look at this, especially as we're sort of surrounded by, you know, needing to support our immune system now, you know, more than ever mm-hmm. um, in in so many ways so let's talk about allergies. we've talked about milk allergies there. Do you think there is this general rise in in allergies amongst youngsters with you know, having to exclude foods because certainly if you go into any supermarket, the free from aisle you know, free from lactose, gluten, whatever it is mm. is growing bigger by the day it seems um no absolutely i i don't I don't think there is
2: evidence to support that it that allergies are are vastly increasing i think um certainly the products are increasing which is great and if you have an allergy it makes your life so much better and easier um and I mean I developed um allergy to gluten and and dairy after a really severe episode of food poisoning back when I went to university and there was nothing you know um gluten-free bread was on prescription and it was it was really tough 20 years ago so um i think it's a really great thing that all of those uh, choices are there now for people whether they are vegan through choice or, or vegan because of allergy or have got other problems but um certainly we know that um breastfeeding reduces the risk of, of things like asthma and wheeze later in life um it there's not the same link there with food allergies so I don't think it's because of breastfeeding rates or anything like that um but I don't I think it's probably just it's better diagnosed people are, are able to you
1: know more aware, more aware yeah, yeah. interesting you, you talk about the gut that kind of leads us inevitably onto the microbiome which is I, I think the conversations that I always seem to end up because everything comes back to the it gut does. doesn't it All roads leading to Rome, every health issue comes back to the gut. Interesting to say that you uh, had a bad bout of food poisoning Mm. that then led to a gluten sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Are we seeing more of that, that, that actually getting our guts back in shape following an incident like that? can actually help with gluten intolerance or lactose intolerance. So rather than automatically having to run to the free from aisle for the rest of our lives, we can actually get a healthy gut back with a bit of gut health.
2: Yes, yeah, so certainly um, there's good evidence. So when children often have you know diarrhea and vomiting, um, they will often have a temporary lactase, um, lactose intolerance um and and if you sort of give up dairy in them for a few days then after that it should recover their you know microbiota to get back to normal and and you know be able to to digest it again um and sort of I don't know about gluten but um but certainly um gut health I think there's so much more to find out about gut health how you Uh, you know, recover gut health post-antibiotics, you know, post-infection, there's so much more research to be done on it. There's so, so much, I think, more to learn about
1: it, really. What do you do at home, you know, for your gut health and for your children now? Do you have certain things that we'll always find in your fridge or your cupboards? Um, so for me
2: personally, I love to fear. They, th- my Excellent. children will love to fear. Um, <laughs> I, love, I like kombucha, the low sugar, you know, high bacterial quality. You this yourself? So that oh. I don't, I, I have two really little children and I Fair don't enough. have time yeah. to make <laughs> them. <to laughs> yes. I've just not got my life sorted quite to that degree. It's, it's a goal and I've seen, I've watched you make your fear a number of times and that is a goal. <laughs> One day, I'll, uh, I'll try and achieve that, but not at the moment. Um, and then, have uh, it? Uh, do they enjoy that as well? they're fine with they like kefir kombucha yeah. they're not so keen on um and then I love raw slaw I love um the hurly-burly I don't you tried hurly-burly but I love no what's hurly-burly is that like um like a sour type? Thing? yeah yeah raw fermented slaw I just love the umami tangy taste of it yeah. also of um, kimchi. yeah kimchi those eating you know fruit and vegetables whole grains all of those I I you know, I really I like. Um, my children are variable on it. They won't eat kimchi or, or uh sauerkraut, but they're only, you know, five and two, so
1: Oh um, yeah, bear with I them think, you know, they've got to acquire those <laughs> tastes. <laughs> Years to about, come. Thinking about little ones and and growing up and brain development, both in youngsters and also as we age, the importance of the omega threes, mm. the EPA and and the DHA, the short chain and the long chain essential fatty acids. How do you recommend that we we get those into our diets? Are you are you a fan of supplementation? Um, so I
2: think there's been lots of, there has been evidence that support that the whole food effect of eating omega 3 is certainly better than, than supplements. So that if you can eat, you know, that whole foods that contain those, that, that's better. Um, so things like salmon, we have salmon, you know, an oily fish, we have that twice a week. Um, mm-hmm. I make my breakfast oats with chia seeds and the kids have you know, chia seeds in pancakes and sprinkled on things. So you know, just another way of getting them in. And I think if you can't, if you're vegan and you're struggling to get them in, um, because it's a lot harder with just plant-based sources of omega three, then supplements then have a role. But I think if you can aim to do that whole whole food first, you know, whole whole uh, food first.
1: I think we're understanding more and more, aren't we, that you know there are certain supplements that are really necessary. Mm. And I'm- You know, it was funny in the early days, I was a big fan of supplements. You know, I'm going back decades here, I guess when they first started to be talked about. And I thought these are fabulous. This is all, you know, the magic answer Mm. to everything. Just swallow some pills and then eat what we like. And then, you know, really, I guess... almost swinging right away from that i went through a phase where i didn't take anything at all Mm. and was just trying to get everything from food and Mm. scratch all that which i still you know try and do for the most part but i think there are some cases aren't there where like vitamin d for example you know potentially iodine you know potentially as you say the omega-3s if Mm. if you're a plant based eater that you know we just need to be aware of of what we're topping up with Absolutely. So I'm a I'm a big fan of trying to get your
2: micronutrients through food where possible um, and trying to avoid supplements as well as, as well, you know, where possible. Um, but there are certain circumstances where you absolutely need them. So vitamin D in England we live somewhere where there's not much sun for autumn and winter and it's certainly NHS guidance to take your um your vitamin D supplement. If you're pregnant, you need very late and um if you're vegan then you will almost certainly need a B12 supplement. And then, you know, there will be other, other people that need different things. But those are sort of the big three that I always think of.
1: And I think that the other things that I've learned uh, over the years is eating whole food, that the nutrients are more than just single substances, aren't they? They're so bound up with all these mm. other available compounds and they work synergistically with other things. So you get so much more out of eating say you know a cabbage leaf than you do from just taking a vitamin yeah. k supplement and also what you with the fact that you need a bit of fat and oil to absorb yeah. it absolutely
2: absolutely no i agree entirely and also just things like people sort of often i think have heard that you know um fruit's really bad for you because it's got sugar in it but actually the difference between a tablespoon of sugar or you know teaspoon or whatever of sugar and um and having naturally occurring sugar in fruit is that the fruit's bound up with water, it's bound up with fibre, which is good for your gut health. It's got all those polyphenol compounds which make it those lovely bright colours which are antioxidants. So it's so much more than a bit of sugar for energy. So yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Although having said that, I know that you are like me, you know, pretty hard nose when it comes to the refined carbs. Mm. you know they're they're not they're not a kind of oh let's shove it in on every meal it's it's something there's something to be watched out for aren't they absolutely
2: i agree wholeheartedly you know have whole grains where possible um uh I think the only exception to that really is children under five where the, the sort of guidance is that they shouldn't have a hundred percent whole grains just because it's increased bulk and fiber and can prevent them from getting enough of the micronutrients because they've still got, you know, little tummy and, and, um, and, and can, and can sort of fill them up prematurely. So it's sort of a gradual thing, you know, get them onto whole grains a hundred percent by the time they're five, but you know, there's a bit of flexibility there before that. Yes. But yeah, otherwise I, I'm, I'm, I agree, it's whole grains all, all the way where possible, but yeah,' um, except not, the
1: occasional not, white rice yeah. when I'm having sushi or something. <laughs> oh yeah, well, yeah, but you know, sushi rice I, I heard is actually one of the good things because it has all the resistant starch because it's cold, it's cold starch, and that's actually feed our little microbes.
2: Yeah, so starch changes when you absolutely so if you cook pasta as well and you keep it in the fridge till the next day, then, then it, the starch becomes more resistant as well. So it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And
1: actually, that is a really good hack for people who are busy because you can cook your pasta, you know, particularly little pieces of pasta like penne or fusilli, mm. and then just chuck them into a pot of boiling water to heat them up again really, really fast. Yeah. But you've also got more of the resistant starch, which is good for your gut bug. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that I wanted to just chat about briefly, and, and I thought would be really interesting, given your background work with, with genetics, is this whole area of nutritional sort of epigenetics. And I recently had a genetic screening, my nutritional profile done, um, just out of interest for research. And I don't have the gene that converts beta carotene to retinol. Mm-hmm. So, now, for me, that's not an issue because, as I say, you know, I eat lots of you know butter and cheese and meat and things. so I'm getting retinol anyway, naturally. Um, but, you know, for me, being a vegan would not be a good option mm. because I'm eating all this beta carotene, you know, gaily thinking, oh, that's fine because it's all converting into vitamin yes. A in my body without realising that I don't actually have that gene. Mm. And isn't it interesting how modern nutrition seems to be going really taking a deep dive into how individually our nutritional needs are varied and we process things differently. And what's right for me won't necessarily be right for you or or your neighbour or or your child even potentially.
2: Yes, I I agree entirely. I think um, it's a really fascinating area. I think there's lots, there is important information to come out of it. Um, I'm a bit cautious about um, sort of people's claims that they can predict your diet based on your genes. Um, because that's certainly not the case and there's no evidence to support that but i think in sort of limited scenarios so whether um you're uh, you don't metabolize and transport vitamin d you know you are you need extra doses of it or yeah. for example in your case and there's sort of limited bits at the you know, limited areas at the moment that we've got you know really good insight into and that you know those are are still important um I think it's a an area that's going to expand hugely over the next five ten years um and it'll be really exciting to see see yeah. that new information similar sort of you know to sort of sampling your microbiota that you know you know some of the baseline There's still lots more of the work to be done there's lots more to be done about working out then how you replace it after antibiotics um how you uh, how you change it, what the changes mean, how that you know why it modulates—all of those different things—I think this is sort of similar in many ways, with the sort of overlap of of um, you know, work that sort of nutri- nutrition and ge- where nutrition and genetics
1: combine. Yeah, and I think just realizing that we are all individual. And mm-hmm. interestingly, that you you talk about vitamin D there. Um, I had somebody uh in my family tested and they were found to to not be processing vitamin d very effectively and actually they now need to be taking you know rather than a thousand units you know between nine and ten thousand units to actually get them up to the same level i'm one of those people as well yeah are you yeah and that is and how did you find that and when did you find it did you suspect it or
2: um so I had my vitamin D levels done, and they were low despite taking vitamin D supplements and um, right. uh, I think probably before you know a few years ago, as a clinician you 'd have just thought they 're not taking their supplements, um, but obviously, I knew I was, so mm, you were yes <laughs> <laughs> so um I thought mm, this is a bit interesting, and so I did my genetics and and discovered it yeah, so now i I know that i need I need more, so yeah, that was I think a really so as I say I think there's some really useful benefits to it um I just think it's uh it's it's a sort of I guess it's a spectrum of claims so some really useful bits of it but I think you know we need to be really careful not to sort of over-claim, you know actually you can't predict your diet you can't predict that you should no. be eating x y and z you can just say that there's some limited things which are really important and do have profound you know impact but
1: um but yeah yeah no definitely and certainly in terms of mental health and anxiety levels looking at the pathways in the body of the bit of the vitamin d and how that's mm. impacting on serotonin and dopamine and all of that it's uh, it's so fascinating
2: absolutely so vitamin d i think it's a cofactor for up to 20 percent of our genome which is incredible so no yeah it has profound effects um so having normal levels of vitamin d is important you know i no. don't advocate taking you know huge amounts and 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 overdoing it i think you know just being vitamin d
1: replete is is important It's something, well, maybe that's, you know, one of the small glimmers of good news to have come out of this awful year is that Mm -hmm. vitamin D has sort of been thrust a little bit more into the spotlight, hasn't it, as we've become more aware of it, that's it's helping with our immune system. But if it has all these other benefits as well, then... And, of course, it's not not really a vitamin, is it? It's more of a hormone.
2: Yeah, um, yes. I mean, it's a really interesting... um, you know, vitamin because it's got a lot of um so, so for example, we don't understand why, but we know that um vitamin D is linked for lung linked to lung function, which I think is, you know, quite interesting that just by taking vitamin D you can improve your lung function if you've got a chronic lung disease. You know, so to patients with, for example, cystic fibrosis rather the chronic lung disease, their lung function improves just by taking vitamin D. And there's you know clear association there. We don't know the mechanism. But um vitamin D it, it's a very interesting molecule it's lots of uh lots to say who knows whether it might have um I think there's more lots more research to be done on on
1: vitamin D and covid as well lots more to understand so yeah yeah for sure honestly it is such a great great pleasure to to welcome you to our family here thank you, thank for- you. Of hopping onto the pod for this little exploratory romp through so many sort of life stages and you know we've touched on so many different things and I know that there's so much that we will continue to chat about and it's really great you. That you can come on here I hope that you'll join me again many more times just to sort of bring this to life and we look forward to your regular columns in Lizard Wellbeing magazine. Thank you you yeah, know it's very exciting I'm really delighted to be a part of it so thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. And um, go well and get back to your babies. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, Harriet. <laughs> thank you, Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. As always, you will find all the links and the resources that Harriet and I mentioned on today's show over on lizardwellbeing.com. There you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter and it's jam-packed with plenty of expert advice on women's health with experts like Harriet. Huge thanks, of course, to all of you who leave us such lovely reviews, especially on iTunes. You know, it really does help others to find the show and so many Find it really beneficial. So, until the next time we chat, go well. Don't forget your vitamins. Bye bye. The Lizard Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizard, with production by Amaryllis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue, with thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, guest booker, Millie de la Morinier, and assistant researcher, Martha Comerford.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.